All right, as we continue our study through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we come to a very well-known text out of the letter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. It is a section about marriage, and that's why it's so well-known. It's used all the time at weddings. It's used at sermons or lessons or marriage retreats or anything like that. This is one of the central texts in the New Testament that teaches us about a Christian view of marriage. And so it comes up a lot in those contexts in the church and in church-like settings. And so it's a very well-known section of Ephesians. So I want to walk down through this section and help us understand what's really being said here, some of the implications of that as we go. But before we do that, we need to make sure we realize or keep in mind that this is part of a larger section that, that spans the chapter break in chapter 5 to 6 that is really about the Christian household. And so you get um, husbands and wives in 5, 22 to 33. And then in 6, 1 through 9, you get fathers and children and slaves and masters. And so those uh, pairings all have to do with relationships within the Christian household. And this was quite common in uh, really ancient moral philosophy, ancient moral instruction. It was very regular to address the household and to have what scholars now today call household codes. And that's what this is. This is a household code where all of a sudden we're now giving, here is instruction for, here is uh, you know the way a household should be run or should be managed or should be characterized. Really, Paul is doing that, although with some unique distinctives. And so the section about marriage doesn't stand by itself. It's part of this larger context that's really addressing the whole Christian household, including husbands, wives, and children and their fathers, slaves and masters. All right. It's also important for us to realize that as we go through these instructions that Paul gives here uh, to the household, the head of the household, that is the man, gets hit the hardest. He's the husband, and he gets the bulk of the instruction in the section about wives and husbands. He is the father, and he gets some instruction in relationship to the kids. He's the master, and he gets some instruction in relationship to the slaves. So he gets hit the hardest, and that's really important for us to realize. And not only that, the instructions given in these sections and given to the man are really countercultural and grounded in the gospel. Both of those points are important. Oftentimes we hear these people that you know don't like these texts, don't like what they say, reject these texts and say, well, you know, Paul's just following the conventions of his day. He's just going along with the culture of his day. But he's not. And that's so important for us to realize is he's incredibly countercultural in the way he does this. He's countercultural in some what are easy to miss ways, and he's countercultural in some really big theological ways. For example, he's countercultural in the fact that he directly addresses, in this text, the wives, he addresses the slaves, he directly addresses the kids. That is incredibly rare for, you know, the, for lack of a better term, the subordinate partner in these pairings, or I don't know what the best word is there, but for the wives, children, and slaves, it's very rare in Greek and Roman literature for the wives, children, and slaves to ever get directly addressed. What usually happens is the head of the household, the man who's in charge of the household, he's told what he's supposed to do 
for his slaves, to his slaves, to his kids, to his wife, how he's supposed to manage his wives, how he's supposed to, he's given the instructions on what he's supposed to do to them. They're never addressed. Why? Because they tended to have such a low view of uh, women, children, and slaves that they didn't dignify them with, you know, the responsibility of here is what you should do and the choices you should make. The Christian approach is very different. And so it's countercultural in that sense. It's countercultural in the sense of some of the specific instructions given to the man, right? Like, remember, this flows out of Paul's uh, mention of submitting yourselves to one another in 521. We talked about that in our last session, that when he says submitting yourselves to one another, um, there in 521, that's a way of uh, an outcome of being filled by the Spirit. And we said that that really has to do with that spirit of deference to our fellow Christians. We yield to each other. We live for the benefit of each other, right? It's that spirit of service that was modeled by Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for us that we imitate in deferring to one another and living in submission to one another and respecting each other and all of that. It's really a disposition to give yourself up for another person. And yeah, it'll look different depending on our roles or the needs or the nature of the relationship, but it's that same disposition to give yourself up for another person. And it's that disposition that's applied to wives and husbands in this text, 522-33. And really, it's the same disposition that's going to show up with slaves and masters and even in relationship to fathers and children. And so that's countercultural. They, there was no disposition to, for the head of the household to give himself up for his slaves, to give himself up for his kids, to lay down his life for his wife. They didn't expect that. He didn't have to do that. He was in charge. He was the head of the household. He was the authority in the home. He could do whatever he wanted. He had a lot of freedom as the head of the household. And so these texts are very countercultural. And as I said, it's grounded in the gospel. It's rooted in what Jesus did for us, the pattern and the example of Jesus. All right. So those preliminary observations are terribly important to understand that when Paul does this, when Paul gives a household code, he's actually saying there's a gospel-centered, Christ-centered kind of way of being a family, and it's different than what you've heard in all your uh, moral philosophy and all the teaching of the day and the, the, the conventional wisdom of the day. It's different because it's Jesus-centered and gospel-centered, and that's what he's offering in this text. All right, so here in this session, we're going to look at 522 through 33, the uh, husband and wife section, and then in our next section, we'll get fathers and children, slaves and masters. With that, let's jump into the details of this text. We noted already that it flows out of 521, be submissive to one another in the fear of Christ. That's important because 522, he begins by directly addressing wives and applies this submission to one another to marriage by addressing wives, but he doesn't give a verb. The verb is implied from 521, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, wives, to your own husbands, literally. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Um, what, what are wives supposed to do to their own husbands? Well, it's implied from 521. Wives, submit yourself to your own husband as to the Lord. And that's what 522 says. So wives, um, be subject or submit yourselves to your husband as to the Lord. Notice it's to your own husband, not to every male. So that's important. Wives, uh, submit yourselves to your own husband as to the Lord. Notice also that wives are the ones that are told to do this. It's their responsibility. Husbands in the New Testament are never told to make their wives submit. That was the convention of the day 
uh, among the Romans and the Greeks. The husband's job was to control his wife, make her submit. But here, the wife is dignified with her own ability to choose. This is her responsibility. This is her choice. This is her way of expressing her submitting yourself to one another in the fear of Christ. Do that for your husband, wife. Do that to your husband. Submit yourself to him. And the idea of submit is to arrange yourself under his leadership. Right? We noted that in our last session just in general. You arrange yourself under your husband's leadership. So uh, addressing the wife like this is, is really giving her the dignity of choice, and it stands out, as I noted, in Greek and Roman literature as unique. Um, it's extremely rare in the household literature of the day to address the wife, the children, and the slaves. But the New Testament does. Why? Because Jesus and his, and his apostles dignify them as real responsible people who can make real choices. So he gives them this choice. Here's what's appropriate for you to do. And it says, wives, be submissive to your own husbands as to the Lord. Probably meaning as part of your commitment to the Lord. Not as if your husband is the Lord. That's not the point. In fact, that becomes very clear when you look at the parallel in Colossians chapter 3. You can check that out in the Colossians commentary here on the listener's commentary. Um, but that's probably what he has in mind. As part of your commitment to the Lord, you, just like in the fear of Christ, you arrange yourself under your husband's leadership. Um, then he gives a reason for this. This, he says, is patterned after Christ in the church. In fact, the comparison to Christ in the church will be carried on throughout the description of marriage. And so here it shows up for the first time in this comparison. And he says, your submission to uh, your husband is patterned after the relationship between Christ and the church. And so verse 23 and verse 24 really draws this out. It says, for, that word is because. Literally, it's hati in Greek, which is the word for because. It's giving the reason. Why should you submit yourself to the husband? Well, here's why. Because the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is to submit itself to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, Let's just make sure we, we work through this and are really clear on what he's saying. The reason wives should arrange themselves under their husband's leadership is because the, their husband is, quote-unquote, the head of the wife. The comparison between Christ and the church that follows and the prior descriptions of Christ being the head over the church earlier in the letter is really where this idea and this language comes from. This is the echo of that. And um, those prior descriptions of Christ being the head of the, the church, and even here the comparison in this specific context, this paragraph, indicate that the word head has some sense of leadership, maybe even some sense of authority. Uh, we should not avoid that simply because it sounds weird to our modern sensibilities. Um, we don't like the idea of, you know, that there's some maybe sense of leadership or authority implied by this word head. It sounds odd to us, doesn't fit with what we think uh, the way things should be expressed or described. And so sometimes we minimize it or we avoid that. We shouldn't do that. Instead, what we should do are, is two things. 
First, we should be willing to examine and adjust our modern sensibilities to the teaching of Jesus' apostles. We are, after all, Jesus' disciples, and that means we believe he knows what he's talking about, so he knows more than our culture does, right? That's what we believe as disciples, that Jesus just knows what he's talking about. He knows more than our culture does, so we're going to listen to him. So we've got to be willing to examine and adjust our modern sensibilities to the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. Second, we should be sure to understand, this is really important, we should be sure to understand authority the way Jesus taught it and modeled it. What does that mean? Well, if there's an echo of authority, there's an implication of leadership and authority in the word head, then that means we need to make sure we hear the word head and carry that out and think about that and even feel about that um, the way Jesus taught about authority. How did Jesus teach about authority? How did Jesus model authority? Well, for Jesus, authority equaled service. It, 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 it meant acting for the benefit of another person, not acting for your own self-interest, not acting for your own benefit. That means laying down your life for others. And that's what Jesus did consistently in Jesus' teaching about authority. That's what Jesus says is that this is what I mean by authority. You lay down your lives for the sake of others. Um, and that's what Jesus did for us. That's exactly immediately where Paul turns in his explanation of this idea of headship. Uh, Paul says that Christ's headship is the pattern, and notice what he says about Christ being the head of the church. Husbands, the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, notice what he says, he himself being the savior of the body. So he laid down his life for the church. Christ's headship flows from and expresses itself in being the savior of the church, laying his life down for her. And that means Christ's headship was not used to dominate, was not used to control the church, but was used for the benefit of the church, was used to help bless and aid the church. And that's how we have to understand headship in this context. That's how we have to understand authority in Jesus' teaching. Headship means acting to bless, not acting to boss. Did you catch that? And so when we say, when we hear that husbands are the head of the church, don't like, don't, you know, even if it's natural, get defensive or bristle about that. When we understand what the whole New Testament teaching and what Jesus taught about headship, it makes perfect sense. Um, being the head is meaning to act to bless somebody else. In fact, Paul will go on to teach that very shortly here, explicitly to husbands, and that'll be the way the husband is supposed to submit himself to his wife for the, for the sake of Christ. And so headship means acting to bless, not to boss, and this is the pattern for husbands, which, as I noted, will be made explicit here in a moment. One final observation on this whole headship theme that I think is really, really important for us to point out because it stands in contrast to much contemporary Christian teaching that tells husbands they're supposed to be the head. You've got to be the head of the home. You've got to be the, the head of your wife. Da, da, da. And it tells them they're supposed to do that. And then husbands feel like, i got to be the head and all that. That's not what the text says. Notice what the text says. Um, the husband is not commanded to be the head of the wife here. It just says he is. The husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. It's a statement of fact here. It's not a command. So it simply says the husband is the head of the wife. They are the head. Question isn't, are you a head or not you the head? The question is, are you a good head or a bad head? And the measure of that is the pattern and the example of Jesus. 
are you imitating Jesus in the way you're leading your wife, in the way you're loving the wife, in the way you're ahead in the home? Are you imitating Jesus? And so because the husband is the head of the wife and he's a head modeled after the self-giving pattern uh, of Jesus, she should choose to arrange herself under his leadership in everything. That's what Paul says there in verse 24. With that then, Paul now turns to husband, and once again, the pattern of Jesus is central to what he has to say. He says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands are to love their wife, and that seems obvious enough in our context. And there were certainly, at least occasionally, instructions along those lines in Paul's context. This wasn't the major instruction to husbands, surprisingly to us, in Paul's context. But there certainly are places where husbands are praised for that. Husbands are instructed to do that. But neither today nor in Paul's day did the command to love uh, your wife go as far as Paul takes it here in this context. Paul says husbands are to love their wives, and the, the Greek word for love is the well-known word agape. This is the word that became distinctive of God's love in the New Testament. It's God's love that is to mark disciples of Jesus, and so it is God's kind of love that Christian husbands must display for their wife. This love is deeper than romance. This love is deeper than affection affectionate feelings or even uh, romantic or even sexual feelings. This is steadfast love. This is self-sacrificing love. This is the kind of love that stays true through thick and thin. That's the kind of love. So husbands, you have that kind of love for your wife. You, uh, you have agape love, steadfast, stick through thick and thin, lay down your life kind of love for your wife. And the pattern of this love is Jesus who gave himself up for the church. And thus, husbands are to imitate Christ and give themselves up for their wife. That's the nature of the love they are to display. This lay down your life, give up your life. This is how husbands are to express the spirit of a deference that's described in verse 21, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. Husbands, here's the way you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to defer to your wife by giving yourself up for her, by laying down your life for her. Now, what was the goal of Christ giving himself up for the church? Well, the goal is stated in verses 26 and 27. This is what Paul says. Christ laid down his life for the church, verse 26, so that, that's a statement of purpose or goal, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So the goal of Christ's self-giving love for the church was to set her apart as his own and to bring her into holiness. That's the goal. Christ laid down his life for her benefit, in other words. He did so so that she could become who she was created to be, that she could be everything God designed her to be. So he did it to sanctify her, which means to set her apart, specifically in the New Testament context, New Testament theology, to set her apart as God's people. This setting apart came about, he says, in 
verses 26 and 27, by means of a cleansing, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so this setting apart came about by means of this cleansing. And this cleansing is described as a washing of water with the word. Now, one question that uh, we need to at least wrestle with, because it's important here, and scholars do wonder this, is this purely metaphorical, or is there some at least implicit uh, allusion to reference to baptism? Commentators uh, on this passage for centuries uh, from the beginning of the church saw it as referring to baptism. Uh, some commentators today, however, argue that it's purely metaphorical because he uses the word washing rather than the word baptism. Uh, however, personally, I find it difficult to think that a first century reader of Paul's words here um, would hear this text and not think of baptism. Why? Because in the first century, baptism was just the regular, consistent, universal entry point into the church. Uh, they didn't they didn't wait months or weeks or even years from the time of profession of faith till the time of baptism. It usually happened immediately, sometimes on the very same day. Just look at the book of Acts. We see that all the time. It happened on the very same day. Think of the Philippian jailer, believed in Jesus that the very night that he believed in Jesus, even though it was late at night, Paul takes him out, baptizes him, right? So, I mean, that's just the way it worked. That's why Paul can write to the Romans and just assume they've all been baptized in Romans chapter 6, even though he's never been there. It was just the, the consistent, immediate entry point into God's people. And so I just can't imagine that a first century reader would, would read this text uh, and not hear an allusion to baptism. That, that's probably why it was taken this way in the early church for centuries, right? And so, but if that's the case, if this is some sort of implicit allusion to baptism, why the weird wording then? Why the washing rather than baptism? And I suggest it's because Paul is playing off the marriage imagery of which this text is about, and he has a he kind of has a first century wedding in mind, which used a ritual washing as a pre-marriage ritual bath. That was very standard in the ancient world, was you would have a kind of a ritual washing, a ceremonial washing before the wedding ceremony. I think Paul uses the word washing because he's alluding to that as well. So it has this double allusion to the ritual washing before a wedding ceremony and an allusion to Christian baptism, both kind of in the background because of the nature of the text. So this cleansing and setting apart is so that the church can be presented radiant and beautiful in all her glory. And again, it seems that Paul has a wedding in the back of his mind, the bride all dressed up in beautiful clothes, all decked up, jewelry, hair done, right? Everything. She's stunning. She's gorgeous. She's beautiful. And she's presented to her groom. Well, playing off of that, Paul says that this is Christ's goal for the church um, to present her to himself, primarily in moral terms. Uh, notice that she would be presented holy and blameless. And so that's why Christ laid down his life for the church, was ultimately that she should be holy and blameless. Now, Paul has wondered from his main point about marriage and all of that, but he did so to paint a picture of Jesus' self-giving love for husbands, and they're supposed to imitate that. They're supposed to lay down their life uh, like Christ laid down his uh, life for the church. And so Paul now returns to the point here in verse 28 and says, So... Uh, the word in Greek for so is hutos, which means in this way. 
in this way, husbands ought to love their own wives as their, their own bodies, right? In the same self-giving way, the same uh, way for her benefit, the same way for her becoming all she's created and designed to be, the same way for her holiness and blamelessness. Like, husbands, lay down your, your life for the benefit of your wife. He goes on and says, he who loves his, his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. And so uh, Paul now is working up to this idea of husbands and wives being one flesh. He'll quote that verse here in a second. Um, Christ is the head of the body, so he uses the word body. He uses the word flesh because he has these things going on in his mind about Christ. Uh, husbands and wives being one flesh, as Genesis said, and Christ being head of the body. So you get body, flesh, all of that. And so husbands uh, are supposed to love their wives as themselves. No one hated his own flesh, his own body, his own self, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does for the church. And so the, by implication, husbands are supposed to nourish and cherish their wife. Um, and those two words seem to speak of physical nourishing, right? Nourish literally has to do with meeting physical needs and caring for, right? And nourishing them and emotional nourishing and emotional caring for, like cherish speaks more of the emotional care, meeting emotional needs. And so uh, this is what we do for ourselves. This is what we're supposed to do for our wife is what Paul's saying to husbands. Now, this is God's original design and original intent for marriage. When God first dreamed up marriage way back at the beginning with Adam and Eve, Paul, or God had this vision in mind. So Paul now quotes Genesis 2.24 uh, in order to really ground what he's saying in the very intent and design for marriage from the beginning. And so Genesis 2.24, Paul quotes it in verse 31 and says this, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the ground for everything he's just said. Husbands and wives are one flesh. That's God's intent, God's design for marriage. That's just what marriage is. That's the way marriage works, uh, at least the way God designed it to work, and now it's been twisted and corrupted. But that's the ground for everything he said. Thus, loving your wife is like loving your own body. It's like loving yourself, because in some very powerful maybe even mysterious sort of way, husbands and wives are one. They're one. And this oneness, according to Genesis 2.24, quoted here, this oneness requires leaving and joining, leaving his father and mother and being joined to his wife, turning himself towards his wife, right? Turning his life towards his wife, arranging his life around her, uh, cutting off those most defining, really, social relationships and sociological relationships even that were so important in ancient culture, father and mother and all that. Now, no, your, your new unit, your new home, your new family, your new identity has to do with your wife. So you're leaving and you're joining uh, your wife and the two now are joined together as one, one flesh. And Paul says in verse 32, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. He seems to be saying that in some way, the interplay of the oneness in marriage and the oneness between Christ and the church is a great mystery. We, we could have never known about the way that Christ and the church's oneness and marriage's oneness kind of 
like connected with each other and pointed to each other if God didn't reveal it to us. But God has, and so it is. Marriage is intended to point to the relationship between Christ and the church. And the relationship between Christ and the church portrays what marriage is meant to be like. And so this interplay between the two is a great mystery. Um, and now we see it because God has revealed it to us. With that then, Paul summarizes the main point of his this passage about marriage, uh, which really enunciates for us the two main implications of this text. Verse 33 here is the summary statement, and out of this we get really the two main implications for us today. This is how Paul summarizes the main point. He says in verse 33, Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife as himself, so make sure you do that, husband. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Those two really are the, the main points Paul is making. If we want to understand what he has in mind by wives, submit yourselves to your own husband. Respect, respect, respect. Make sure you respect him. Make sure you um, look up to him. Make sure you speak well of him, right? Like make sure you defer to him and you, you seek his opinion. You don't go behind his back. Make sure you're not self-assertive and brash and trying to get your own way. Make sure you don't make it hard for him. To, to lead and make a good decision and do its best. You work together as partners and you, you build him up and you respect him. Husbands, on the flip side, you make sure you love your wife. You make sure you lay down your wife. You make sure you seek her needs. You listen to her opinion. You hear what, what's in her best interest. You always consider what's in her best interest. And then you take that into consideration and you lay down your life for her and you make good decisions. And you work together in this give and take. And this, this is how submit to one another in the fear of Christ plays out in marriage. It looks like this, this husband deferring to the wife and laying down his life for the wife, the wife deferring to the husband and respecting him and, and wanting to arrange herself under his leadership. And as each spouse does this, guess what? Harmony grows and teamwork works together. And the marriage becomes a beautiful picture of the love relationship between Jesus and the church.